It's about women's empowerment, the fulfillment of desire, the awakening of power. And if you want to, you know, just take it to the base symbology of an orgasm, then both Rowan and Deirdre have one at the same time. This is the AMC Mayfair Witches podcast, and I'm your host, Amy Nicholson, writer, critic, podcast host, and witch in training. Each week, I will be leading this coven as we talk about the latest episode of Mayfair Witches, all things spooky, pulpy, dysfunctional. Today, we are discussing the second episode titled The Dark Place. We've got Annabeth Gish, who plays our witchy matriarch, Deidre Mayfair, and we have Esther Spaulding back on the pod, the writer and showrunner behind the whole series. But let me offer you a whispering word of caution. If you have not yet watched the second episode and you listen to this podcast first, your own brain might pull a rowan on you and explode some blood vessels. We do not want that. So for your own well-being, watch first, listen after, okay? My daughter's alive. Asher's seen her, but she's grown up and she's coming here. In episode two, the prodigal daughter returns to New Orleans. After Rowan's adopted mother dies, our dear witch is hurled into a cauldron of confusion. She learns that she's been lied to her whole life about her biological family, and she's being forced to take a leave of absence from the hospital. She keeps giving people bloody noses with her brain. I mean, even her therapist gets one. And then with this flock of crows poops on her car, she kills them too, and then she has to host a bird funeral? Seriously. Bad things are just bubbling over for Rowan. And they get even weirder when Rowan realizes that she is being stalked by a man named Cyprian for her, quote-unquote, protection. Yeah, I don't know if I buy that. Something's going on there. So Rowan takes matters into her own hands, and she turns out to be not just a brilliant neurosurgeon, but a decent detective. The clues lead her to New Orleans, so she hops on a plane in search of her biological mother. And said biological mother, Deidre Mayfair, is waking up and Deirdre is also searching for her daughter. But Deirdre is not alone. She's also got her creepy spirit sidekick, Lasher, and everyone seems to be pretty freaked out by him, except for Deirdre. Also in this episode, they have sex, maybe, and when they have sex, it's like Rowan is also having sex. I have questions on that one, so stick around, we're going to ask them. Anyway, by the end of the episode, Deirdre and Rowan both converge in a New Orleans hotel. Deirdre is in an elevator heading up to Rowan's floor, and Rowan is walking toward that elevator. It's like a scene from a feel-good family movie where two people who love each other are running full speed ahead for a hug. But this is not a feel-good story. And when Deirdre and Rowan finally meet, well, we're also going to talk about that and a whole lot more with my guests, Annabeth Gish and Estes Balding. Let's get into it. Annabeth, Esta, thank you so much for joining me. Can you introduce yourself for our listeners? Tell them your name, what you do on the show. I'm Esther Spaulding, and I'm the co-creator, showrunner, head writer of Anne Rice's Mayfair Witches. And I'm Annabeth Gish. I played Deirdre Mayfair. Annabeth, you died in this episode. I felt <laughs> like I was just getting to know you. This, this whole episode, I spent it waiting for Rowan to meet Deirdre. But now we're two episodes in. Rowan has lost two mothers. 
And you never get to say one word to her. I know. Esther, how could you? <laughs> Esther, you are so cruel. <laughs> this is something that happens in the book. It doesn't happen quite the same way, but we are following the template of the book, which is that Rowan never gets to meet Deirdre. We spent a long time in the writer's room thinking about how to build this story that would feel like two women coming closer and closer and closer together. And, you know, so much was put in trying to create that feeling. I mean, the story that Rowan hears from Sip in her hotel room right before is all about two wanderers in the woods finding each other. Like everything is crafted to make you feel like this is a moment of meeting. And we wanted even visually to feel almost like that sense of a mirror. They're staring at each other and the doors sliding open, all of this twinning that's happening and reflections and so on. And, you know, that feeling that Rowan is just about on the edge of knowing something about herself and it's taken away and that that will propel her even deeper into this search for her identity and her connection to the Mayfarers and and that she's going to rely on someone and that someone in our story is Cyprian to help her discover that. Well, you filmed this death scene so beautifully. I'd love to know sort of, Annabeth, how you were feeling as this was happening because it's really emotional. We get that tiny smile that Rowan has, this little moment of happiness. Yes. And then your throat is cut and it's just, Gutting to watch. Literally. (laughs) (laughs) Lacerated and decapitated. It's sort of my Sean Bean Game of Thrones moment because I'm so short-lived and yet to great effect. (laughs) But actually, the scene in the elevator is quite interesting because it wasn't really... I mean, we shot a bit of it that was me. It was just a few shots of Alexandra finding me. But for the most part, some of the other stuff is the special effects doll that they, I don't even know if to call it a doll. It's a, it was a real body that was quite uh, exactly to my proportion, except my boobs. My boobs aren't that big. <laughs> <laughs> and you're right to say, Annabeth, that Game of Thrones, Sean Bean moment, because we did want the audience to feel now that we're in the land of New Orleans and the land of the Mayfairs, the stakes are up high and any of these characters you love could go at any second, like don't get too attached, you know? This is like a very frightening world of this family. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, I hear you on this being a frightening world, but I have to ask, maybe we haven't seen the last of Deidre? I mean, this is a supernatural show. Mm. Anything could happen. Is there a chance we might see her again? Well, I'm, I'm not sure how I can, if I can accurately answer that, but I could say, one could say that especially with Anne Rice, but, you know, vampires and witches, do they ever die? Do they? Do they? Do they? Do they? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, 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 okay. I can see that you are not going to give me anything. But Annabeth, what is your history with Anne Rice, with these books, before you signed on for the series? Well, 20 years ago, or in 1999, when the book was published, The Witching Hour, I read the book. I still have the hard copy of the book, which is dog-eared and... I was obsessed with it. I, of all of her novels, The Witching Hour in particular, really captivated me. And it's a female story. It is about desire and dark and light and agency. 
you know, and so I think 20 years ago, I was desperate to play Rowan. And now to come full circle with a woman such as Esta, who I have a little bit of a history with, just, you know, we've worked together before. And I played her mother in a show. I was going to say, we've never put that together in the mother. I know. But it's absolutely true. That's how we know each other, which is... The mother. Yes, that's beautiful. (laughs) You played Esther's mother? I want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly. So many years ago, many, many years ago, when I was a child, my mother was on a jury of a murder trial. I won't go into the details of it, although they are fascinating. But she wrote a nonfiction book about her relationship with the woman who was the accused in that. And the book was turned into a television movie. And Annabeth was cast to play my mother. Yes, Linda. Yes. <laughs> in a fictional version of a nonfiction story about a murder trial. We are mystically connected through the maternal line. <laughs> <laughs> That's spooky. I don't know how to move on from that, honestly. I have so many questions about this murder trial, but I also have so many questions about this episode. I know I went ahead of myself. I jumped all the way to the end of the episode, but let's jump all the way back to the beginning. Let's talk about this opening scene for a little bit. Like, Esta, you opened this episode 350 years ago. We're in Scotland. We see another pair of a nice mother, a nice daughter. They're picking herbs. And we then see that mother forced to give a handjob to this just creep in the woods. I'm sure that there's not a ton you can tell us right now, but why did you want to start the episode with that scene? And is that woman a Mayfair? I can tell you that that woman is a Mayfair, that's Suzanne Mayfair, and that it was really important to me in this season to nod to the extraordinary central section of the witching hour, which is a real history of 13 generations of Mayfair witches. And I knew that in eight episodes of television with a story that was focused on really Rowan's experience and her drive, we were not going to be able to tell those 13 generations. But I wanted to explore one of the generations really thoroughly and have it matter in our contemporary storyline in some way, which I won't, you know, explain now, but which it it does unfold and matter in Rowan's story later on in the show. Do you think that that is a thing that happens in humans' lives, even if they're not witches, that, you know, for all of us kind of walking around, we have these family stories that are impacting our modern lives, even if, like, we don't even know the actual history of our families, if everyone alive has forgotten what it took to get our line here? Absolutely. What happened 13 generations ago matters to who you are, not just genetically, but also your interior life. There's a kind of almost ancestral memory. And I want to add, including that in the beginning is is the theme of the suppression and commerce of women, Right. Like, yes, she collects these herbs, but she has to perform this duty to keep this man, you know, happy and her place solidified. But it's also about like, okay, what do you do with that rage and that power that then, as Esther said, is ancestrally encoded into all of these women? And it's a theme that whether it's Lasher or Cortland Mayfair or whomever, even Carlotta, people who suppress the power, Mm. the power that is innate in a woman's hands, 
I think it's just you could write, I'm sure, dissertations on the themes. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the most exciting things to me about The Witching Hour is that it's a story of witches, but the lead character is a doctor. And when I first read it, I was like, why make your lead character a doctor in a book about witches? And then I went back and read this history of the massacre of women healers and midwives in the Middle Ages in Europe. And it was like, oh, that's why. Because women healers were accused of witchcraft and put to death for it. And that is the origin story for this family. Mm. And that healing ability is carried through all of these generations. And we meet it in the form of Rowan, who is the sort of culmination of that healing knowledge. And so her journey in this season is to sort of come into ownership and possession, if she chooses, of this healing power. I mean, Esther has steeped this in, like, I think it was, were you referring to the Gnostic Gospels, or what was the other book that you were studying about witchcraft? Yeah, one of the books that we relied on heavily was a book that is A Witch Hunter's Guide, Malefius Maleficarum. Yes. I have a copy of it. You can buy a paperback version of The Witch Hunter's Guide. And our witch hunter in the show, we do have one, is based on a real historical character named Matthew Hopkins, who was responsible for the deaths of many, many thousands of midwives and healers on behalf of the church. And he, of course, followed this this guide and penned parts of this guide. I think there's something wonderfully wicked in you using the enemy's guide Mm -hmm. to serve (laughs) our heroines better. Well, I won't tell how it goes in the story, but I will say that one of my favorite things in The Witching Hour is Anne Rice's origin story for the witches and Lasher. And it is exactly the opposite of what you would expect. And it's just wonderful. And, you know, we use it in this season. What a good tease, Esta. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But I think what's interesting, too, is if we're talking about family legacies and this history, Annabeth, when you arrived on the scene as an actress, people just assumed that you might be related to the great silent actress Lillian Gish, who you are not related to. Be very clear about that. But (laughs) I did hear a story that you once wrote her a letter asking for advice on how to have an acting career. And she was like, don't do it. And I want to be clear. I love Lillian. I want to give a huge shout out to the movie she made in 1920, where she's floating on a real chunk of ice in a cold river. Her hair froze. Her right hand never worked again. Really Mm -hmm. gave everything to her craft. But Shutting you out when you ask her for advice for, like, how do I get this power sounds a little Aunt Carlotta. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Interesting. I think she was only doing what, ironically, is protective and truthful. She just said there was too much talent and not enough work and to stay where people loved me. So I think that's very revealing about how it can be a damaging industry. It's very, it's a painful, their dreams are made and crushed in the same you know, month, (laughs) many times. (laughs) And I want to say that my mother, who is, you know, very, very loving and supportive, wonderful mother, when I told her that I thought I was going to be a writer, she is a writer, burst into tears, said the same thing. (laughs) It's a hard life. Don't do it. Don't do it. Can't you think of something else to do? (laughs) But in a weird way, you know, those of us who are just hell-bent on doing it and suffering the agony and the ecstasy, despite the warnings, uh, we forge ahead. (laughs) You both rebelled very clearly. You're like, well, I'm going to do it anyway. You both both have a real Deidre streak. I hope it works Mm -hmm. out for you a little better than it does for her in this. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I want to go back to Deirdre for a minute because this is really your episode, Annabeth. 
At the start of this episode, Deirdre is stuck in this comatose state. But at least when Deirdre is unconscious, we get to go inside your mind. You're seeing yourself in, I describe it as kind of like a dim, claustrophobic room. There's gauze everywhere. You've got lace on your face for like a brief little millisecond. You look to me like a dark bride. And Lasher is there. And if I'm being completely honest, in the scene I'm about to play, he's sounding suave, romantic, (laughs) telling her she's as beautiful as ever. Let's listen to a little bit of that scene. You remember I promised you once that your life would change. That everything would be better. I remember. That change is coming, my love. I found her. Your daughter. She's alive. She's in a place as dark as this one. I want to see her. I need to see her. Then you need to wake up and take control. Use the power that's rightly yours. Do you hear me? Wake up. Wake up. (laughs) (laughs) Has she just been locked in a room with him in her mental state for decades? Are they hanging out in Gauzland? What's happening? The episode is titled A Dark Place. And that is, of course, the place that Rowan is in after everything that's happened in the pilot. So she's in this very dark place. And then, again, the mirror of this story was to start Deirdre in her dark place. And the challenge for the writers was when this character, Deirdre, wakes up, we can't have her just suddenly saying, you know, I need to go see my daughter and da da da, talking to the doctor or whatever, if we haven't been with her a little bit to know what her interior life was like. So, how do we create that interior life in some way? And how do we suggest the bond that she has to Lasher? So, all of that led us to this conceit. So, we took a room in the house and production design completely redressed it with all this great gauze and cobwebs and so on. And it was the inside of Deirdre's mind. I love it. I really think it's kind of an insight into mental, like a liminal mental state, you know, but it was also hysterically fun and funny to film because we're sitting there and set designers as set dressers and props and everyone are there shaking tables and, (laughs) you know, we can see them as they're wobbling so that the room vibrates. And it's all very, you know, just surreal and you just are in this other place, but it's all the technicalities of it are are quite uh, (laughs) funny as well. (laughs) And that was really the first scene that we shot with Lasher where we really realized that like, oh, we don't need continuity for this character. He can be behind her and then suddenly in front of her and we don't need to see him make that move. In fact, it's not interesting to watch Lasher walk. I would say we spent a long time on this scene and I think a lot of that was because we were discovering the way that Lasher moves in a scene. Mm -hmm. And that was exciting too. That you can just sort of blink and he'll be behind you and then blink and he'll be in front of you. Exactly. He can surround you at, at all points. It sounds pretty overwhelming for Deidre, especially when he's saying to her, I can make your life better. I can make things change. I want to believe him, and I very much feel like I shouldn't. (laughs) He is a seductive force, you know. I'm actually happy that she had company in that liminal space, (laughs) (laughs) albeit toxic. I mean, Jack Houston as a lasher is such an inspired casting choice. You know, he's playing this legacy whatever lasher is. And for listeners who don't know, Jack comes from a really long line of Hollywood legacy. When I see him... I see his great-grandfather, Walter Houston. Walter Houston won an Academy Award for the Treasure of the Sierra Madre. 
I see his grandfather, John Houston. John Houston directed The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. I see his aunt, Angelica Houston. She needs absolutely no introduction for witch fans. She is the Morticia Adams, and her role in Rural Dolls the Witches is one of the greatest witches of all time. Absolute witch banger. So then when I see Jack as Lasher, I see four generations of power. And I just want to know, how were you thinking of legacy, of power, when you conceived of this version of Lasher? Michelle Ashford and I, we wrote the pilot together. The hardest part of writing that pilot was thinking about how much Lasher is there? How much is he scary? How much is he sexy? How do you make him scary if he is sexy? You know, like, what is the way to imagine this character? And we would always say, he's a rock star. He is Mick Jagger. He is Kurt Cobain. Like, he is just moves through the room and everyone knows he's there. And we would try to think about what it's like, you know, a rock star walks into a bar. How do people behave differently and all that? That's Lasher in the Mayfair family. And then we hear that it's possible that Jack Houston will meet with us. He's read the script and we get on the Zoom and Michelle and I are like, he's a rock star. He's that. <laughs> he has that feeling. He's the most genuinely lovely, lovely, lovely person. And you feel so that he's present when you talk to him, but he has this extraordinary ease and charisma that's, you know, you could feel through this Zoom screen when you meet him for the first time. Mm -hmm. So I guess if we're talking about people carrying things in their, you know, ancestral memory, he's got it. You know? <laughs> and the other thing that was very funny for me was that I made all of the writers watch certain movies. You know, you have to see this film before we started breaking the show. And one of them was Chinatown for reasons that I won't go into, but that connect later in the season. And so Chinatown, Chinatown. And then I was like, we have a piece of Chinatown <laughs> in our show. Show. We've cast Jack Houston. Jack Houston's grandfather, John Houston, is the bad guy in Chinatown. It's all coming together. This is all very, very cool. If that was on your list, and I'm trying to figure out why, I need to know the other movies that you had people watch. So there were a few for different reasons. One movie was Get Out. We all watched Get Out because it did such a great job of bringing horror into a contemporary world and making it be about something without being exactly polemical. It was just such a great piece of storytelling. Rosemary's Baby, for so many reasons, the vibe of it, the kind of unknowing character lured into this world. The Green Knight, I really loved, David Lowry's film. And I just love some of the fantasy sequences in that and some of the way visual effects were done in a really, really grounded way. And then the last one was Robert Eggers' The Witch. You could feel like the dirt under their nails in that village. And I wanted all our Scottish stuff to feel that way. Oh, the Green Knight was my favorite movie last year. I'm so glad you said that. But I am, once again, derailing us from talking about this episode. So finally, in this episode, we do get Deirdre waking up. And Annabeth, I really love your power in these scenes where you're kind of coming into your own as as literally. Oh, no. oh, oh, we're going to talk about that. We are definitely going to talk about you coming into your own, you wild animal. Uh, but your anger. I want to talk about your anger first. You never get to go to Paris. You really want to go to Paris. You're so mad you never got to go to Paris, that these youthful years have been stolen from you. You're throwing snow globes of the Eiffel Towers. Can we just take a few seconds and picture Alt Deidre getting to go to Paris? Is she eating macarons? Is she sitting at a cafe? Yes. <laughs> indeed, indeed. She didn't even get to explore her own New Orleans, you know, really. No, the Paris of America. All the Parises mm -hmm. have been cut off for her. It's so sad. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, her mental state in here, like, how much do you think Deidre has changed or really not changed in these comatose years? Is she still mentally in some ways a teenager? 
I think so. Yes, absolutely. Arrested development for sure. And Deirdre is very broken and still childish, and which is why she can probably, you know, still lust for the connection to, to Lasher. Well, speaking of Lasher, as we said, you do get to come into your own with him. <laughs> you really get to shoot two types of sex scenes here. You're shooting one with Jack Houston as Lasher. You're also shooting one where you uh, look like you're alone, m- making yourself happy. Yes. Sounding, as your housekeeper Delphine put it, <clears throat> like a family of raccoons that needs to be put down. <laughs> Is that a compliment? Uh, well, uh, hell yes. In this theme <laughs> of of what Mayfair Witches is about is that it's about women's empowerment. You know, the fulfillment of desire, the awakening of of power. And if you want to, you know, just take it to the base symbology of an orgasm, then, you know, both Rowan and Deirdre have one at the same time. To me, this was just absolutely a scene that was iconic from the book. That scene of Rowan being on the airplane and Lasher being there and that we could kind of have this touchdown between Rowan and Deirdre in the midpoint of the episode, have them connecting through this familiar and have a really erotic scene of this very, very Anne Ricey eroticness of like, Mm -hmm. it just felt like we had to have this scene, this moment in the series, because it was one in the writer's room that everyone just said, that's a scene I think of when I think of the witching hour. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, she really was the queen of breaking taboos. Mm -hmm. I mean, even taboos I didn't know I, I had. I didn't know how taboo it was to imagine this with my own life. Like, oh no, what if I could feel my mother's pleasure? How how would I, f- what, that, I'm sputtering because I don't even know where to go with that idea. I mean, yeah, Anne Rice asks us to not be horrified by that, mm-hmm. to be kind of like open to that idea of pleasure in women. And, you know, what if a mother was able to tell a daughter or teach a daughter through this kind of ghostly spirit how to experience pleasure? I mean, she just asks us to be open things we haven't been open to necessarily. Oh, I appreciate that you're pushing all of us to open up a little bit and not feel like (laughs) immediate moments of, no, that shouldn't be happening. Absolutely not. Thank you. I'm going to send my mother a very nice card. (laughs) 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 But to this relationship with Lasher, I mean, Deidre does not seem scared of him, but everybody else does seem scared of him. Why do you think people are so afraid of him? It, It really was one of the trickiest things in adapting the book is You know, the book so beautifully does this thing where you're both frightened of Lasher, but you also feel that Lasher deeply loves each of the women that he's connected to. And he can be both a loving force and a terrifying force. You know, it's really powerful in the book. And we wanted this first season for the audience to be asking themselves and for Rowan to be asking herself, is this a being that will fulfill my will and make me more powerful? Or is this a being that will make me submit to his will in some way? He is saying, I enact what you want. I am the maker of sort of your witchiness. I make you more powerful. I magnify your power, but only what you want. Is that true or is that a lie? And she's going to go back and forth through the season and, you know, got to watch the show to have it answered, but it's it really is the question. And Sip is saying, be careful of your powers, learn to control your powers, learn to govern your powers. And Lasher is saying, step into your powers more. Don't be frightened of your power to destroy. You can use that too. Be who you truly are. But then, Esther, when you're constructing this whole season with all of these people playing these games, 
I feel unsettled. Are you trying to make us all feel unsettled? Can we trust anybody in here? Do you want us to trust anybody in here? Because it feels like right now, everyone's tricking somebody else. Mm. I don't even think I can trust you after you have now slit Deidre's throat. <laughs> don't trust me, for sure. Um, I, I feel, I, I hope the audience feels they can trust Rowan. We're in her point of view. She is taking us into this world, and she is a very grounded person, a very smart, gifted person, savvy. I think we feel that she's not going to be fooled easily and, you know, that we're in good hands with Rowan. And I hope we can trust Cyprian, someone who's so clearly an empath Mm -hmm. um, and who really feels deeply in the points of view of other people because of this gift that he has and who's taken on this kind of task of protection. I hope that Cyprian is someone we can trust. Well, I actually want to play a clip of Cyprian. This is when he is meeting Rowan for the first time. And yes, Cyprian, of course, played by the great Ponga Teresa. Let's hear that clip. Why are you following me? I'm not a threat. Who are you? Are you the guy with the SUV? My name is Cyprian Grieve. Look, let's go somewhere where we can talk in private. I will explain everything. Just stay, don't. Please, I'm not going to hurt you, man. You don't know what I'm capable of. I know more about you than you think. I mean, first, I want to say, I am struck by how much red tape there is in this show and its portrayal of the witching world. Because in this episode, we see Cyprian on the phone with his bosses, and they're like, no, we do not authorize you talking to Rowan. There are so many rules here, and yet we also have Cyprian breaking the rules and talking to her. What makes him do that? Does he just think that stalking Rowan is actually not being helpful? How would he even think that's helpful in the first place? I think... He sees and feels the pain that she's in. I mean, he's touched these things. He's been on her boat. So what's fun in the scene is that he, you know, keeps saying, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt you. But this isn't like an average woman out in the night. This is a woman who thinks she's going to hurt him. She's scared if he comes too close, she'll kill him. So she's not worried about herself. She's worried about what she might do. And, you know, Sip does break the rules, but he kind of waits for her to notice him and call him out. It's like he he really is a company man. He doesn't want to go against the Talamasca. We're going to hear all the ways in which the Talamasca sort of saved his life when he was a child. But I like to think this is the first time that Cyprian's ever broken the rules, really. Well, since we have you, really quick, what can you tell us about the Talamasca? Because the one thing I do know about them for sure is that this is a group that Anne Rice invented that exists across her entire series of books. That's right. It's really, really fun. I mean, most of the conversations that I've had with Roland Jones, who does the interview with the vampire, is about the Talamasca. That's really where these books overlap. So there are a lot of people thinking about what the Talamasca is. We were the first show to present a version of them. And there were a lot, a lot, a lot of conversations with AMC and with our producers, Grand Via, who are producing all of the Anne Rice shows about what that would look like because it was going to be in so many of the different series. I am excited to see where the Talamasca thread goes because I don't trust them so far. They seem like they're getting in everyone's business. But going back to the end of the episode, to our girl Deirdre, we really see her getting to embrace her power now that she's awake and reunited with Lasher. Mm -hmm. I want to listen to a clip where she confronts Carlotta and is able to finally speak her mind to the woman who has been drugging her for years. Deirdre's almost like a one-woman girl group singing, my boyfriend is back and you're going to be in trouble. (laughs) Let's listen to that clip. Deirdre, I don't know what is happening. 
I am taking you home. I'm not coming home with you. Oh, yes, you are. Who did this to you? Was it that Dr. Lamb? Let go of me. You are not keeping me from my daughter. Oh, sweetheart. Your daughter is long dead. And you are a sick, sick, sick little bird. You understand that if I'm awake now, so is he. Oh, man. Beth Grant, who plays Carlotta, she's eating this scene up. She has that perfect nuance of being evil and a villain and so distorted in her viciousness. But yet she is only in her mind believing that she's protecting Deirdre, you know? And so it's so deliciously evil how you hear her say you're just a sick little bird. You know, I think a sick, sick, sick little bird. She yes. gives you three six. <laughs> yeah. So you take her to be sincere, since she really does think <laughs> she's looking out for Deidre. I believe so. What do you think? I think absolutely. I mean, it's kind of fun to only write villains who believe themselves. You know, there's no mustache twirling here. Carlotta, absolutely, even if she thinks it's terrible what we have to do, keeping her drugged, it's so sad and heartbreaking, it is absolutely necessary for the family and the longer kind of long-term good of the family and keeping this demonic power, this lasher power suppressed. So I think, you know, she sees Deirdre as a casualty, a little bit of what has to be done in the war against Lasher. You just called him a demonic power. And I think that's so mm-hmm. interesting because earlier in the episode, you know, she summons Lasher with this spell. And listening to it, it sounded mm-hmm. a lot like she was saying, my diamond, my diamond, which sounded a lot like demon. Me diamond ad me weni. Me diamond me he labora. Me diamond me libera. Is this a real spell? I, th- I think that, um, that when I say demon, I really mean in Carlotta's point of view. I don't think that's the show's point of view. I think Lasher is much more complicated than that. But the we had a Latin expert who helped us with this incantation. And essentially, the word means my familiar. Mm-hmm. Diamond is like a word that means a supernatural being that is familiar to you. So you can have friendly diamonds? Absolutely. And in, you know what? In the Golden Compass, the animals attached to each of the people that are these really lovely presences that sort of enhance the personality of each of the characters are, are called demons. My demon. It's almost like an alter ego. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. familiar. You yes. know, the witch is familiar. That makes it sound so much more cuddly, which I which I respect. <laughs> but, I mean, hearing that you like, you know, summoned yourself a Latin expert I'm assuming that you did do a lot of research here into like real witches, into real spells, into this language I'm hearing. Absolutely. We had a, a witchcraft consultant as well. Who, Esta, I just met. I just met him. Yeah. Yes. He's amazing. Yes. When things got really tough, it was like, uh, Dylan, we need a spell cast to stop a presence from entering a house. What would that look like? <laughs> but your witchcraft consultant is named Dylan. And now I'm picturing like sideburns and the coolest witch guy ever. <laughs> I think that's exactly what he looks like. He is amazing. And back, Amy, back to the invocation, the summoning of Lasher. You know, we had it recorded. We had it. We were very, very specific about the pronunciations and the rhythm and the scansion of it. And I think we got it accurately. (laughs) (laughs) 
The other thing I really remember from that scene that was so beautiful is that you had a particular set of gestures with you, you know, when you threw your head back, the way in which you were looking and so on. And that when Jack Houston went to shoot his scene as Lasher in the hotel room, he really watched the footage of you doing that scene so he could exactly be mirroring your head movements and your neck movements as if you were inhabiting him and guiding him through the space. Mm, And it was very, very cool in our episode of all of this twinning and mirrors that it really does feel like you're inside of his skin (laughs) leading him around that hotel room. Yes. We really wanted, and Annabeth does this so beautifully in episode two, to see what Deirdre might have been if she'd been allowed to be a powerful witch. I mean, it's compressed into this sort of one day that she wakes up, but it felt really important to all of us writers to see a moment of real witchy power for her. So we knew what her power and life might have been if she hadn't been under Carlotta's thumb. Yes, it is the incredible tragedy of Deirdre Mayfair's life and the absolute heartbreak of her loss, both the loss of her life and her mental capacity from being sedated for 18 years, on top of the even bigger loss, which is the loss of her child. So yes, I mean, I think the audience, it's like, wait, what? What? We're just beginning with Deirdre. And that's the way Rowan feels. You know, so mm-hmm. it's 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 quite effective. I think it will be interesting to see how the audience receives it. Mm-hmm. Well, Esther, Annabeth, this has been so fun. Before you leave, we are going to end with a little segment called Witch Fulfillment. Every episode, we ask our guests what choice you would make as a witch. And in this episode, we get to see Rowan kill birds for pooping on her car. That is petty. So my question for you is, what is the pettiest thing you would use your witch powers to do? <laughs> like the pettiest thing? <laughs> oh, shit. My spell would be the spell to break an episode of television really easily. <laughs> it's, it's funny because I don't know that I would want a special power. I, yes, of course, I would love for teleportation so I don't have to freaking drive on the 405 to get to LAX or to carpool or any of those details. And yet, if you really break it down... If you do have those powers, are you losing the experience of the agony and ecstasy of life? You know, I mean, (laughs) there are so many things I would like to have powers on, but but do we really? Mm -hmm. Do we really? Do we really? (laughs) (laughs) Annabeth Gish, Esther Spaulding, thank you for sharing a witching hour with me right now to talk about Mayfair witches. This has been such a fun conversation. They should make signs that are like the it must be happy hour somewhere for witching hour (laughs) that we can all just have in our witching lairs in our witch room. Indeed. Okay, wow. All right, with that, let's rewind a little bit because Annabeth once played Esta's mother. Esta's mother mother. Esta's like actual, hey, this is the woman I was born with and I cast you to play my mother. And now you're also this mother. That is wild. There is some cosmic energy behind this show that is a little bit unnerving. It's a little bit freaky. Maybe I'll find out that Annabeth also played my mother. Who knows? Before we go, though, I want to add another ingredient into the cauldron of this episode. An ingredient called witchgrass, also known as blue daisy or chicory, because I have to tell you the true story of discord. 
Much of this episode takes place in a hotel, which tracks because hotels are notorious as hotspots for ghosts and hauntings. Just think about it logically. Hotels have tons more history than houses because they have tons more people coming and going every day. And unlike an office building or a grocery store or a Target or something, at a hotel, people feel safe being intimate, showering, going to sleep, having sex with their corporeal or imaginary scary boyfriends. In this episode, Rowan stays at a real New Orleans hotel, the Pontchartrain Hotel, which is said to be haunted by over 20 ghosts. Legend has it that several of these ghosts died on the same night in 1929. Back then, the hotel was just two years old, and it mostly hosted long-term guests. Up there on the top floor, the 11th floor, there were two rich sisters who hated each other. One day, one of the sisters tried to kill the other sister by starting a fire in their room, but that fire spread so quickly that it ended up killing them both. And that fire also went downstairs and killed a husband and wife who were asleep on the ninth floor. Rumor is... All four of their spirits have never left the building. Some say they still see, and really mostly hear, those two sisters arguing forever on the 11th floor, two angry women forever stuck together in the afterlife. And others claim that the married couple still haunts the 9th floor by the ice machine of all places. I wonder if the dead couple is confused about what an ice machine is. Maybe they're just confused that ice machines didn't exist in 1929. Whatever the case... People say that when they bend over to fill their ice bucket, they feel a warm hand on the back of their neck. Next week, we will be joined by director Axel Carolyn to discuss episode three, which is titled Second Line. You will not want to miss this one. If you know what a second line is, you can guess why. And if you don't, you are in for a wonderful, wonderful treat. I feel so connected to all of you right now. So please call in with all of your thoughts and questions about this show. Remember, a coven takes all of us as members. So leave us a message at 888-994-WTCH. That is 888-994-9824. Your message might even be included right here in future episodes of this podcast to live on in eternity. Make sure to watch Mayfair Witches every Sunday night on AMC or stream it early on AMC+. For an extended 30-day free trial of AMC+, Plus, go to amcplus.com and use the promo code MAYFAIRPOD. That's Mayfair, P-O-D. Podcast episodes drop on Sunday nights after the show, so subscribe wherever you listen. And thank you for listening to the AMC Mayfair Witches podcast. This is an AMC Networks podcast produced in partnership with Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at AMC Networks are Kevin Dreyfus, Celia Quinnett, and Brian Swarth. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Gabrielle Lewis, Barry Finkel, Max Linsky, and Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our managing producer is Aaron Kelly. Our producer is Ben Goldberg. Ari Saperstein is our editor. Mixing and engineering by Hannes Brown. I am Amy Nicholson. And thank you again to Annabeth Gish and Estes Balding for joining us. <laughs>